Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Legendary newsman Paul Harvey regularly reminded his listeners that self-government won't work without self-government. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Worship Together with this sermon entitled We Worship Together in Self-Denial, which covers Mark chapter 8 verses 31 to 38 and Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 17. For more information, and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thanks for this time, as always. We pray that you bless it. We give it to you and trust and understand, Lord, that when we open your word, we are opening the very living word of God. And so we ask very simply that you'd soften hard hearts. Would you make all of our hearts receptive would you open ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you do it for your glory? Teach us, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna start us off with a truth this morning. It's not uniquely Christian. It's not a Christian truth necessarily, uh, but it's a truth nonetheless that can prove helpful. And this is what it is, it's simply this. Every day, fundamentally, foundationally, every day, most of the time boils down to two questions that will determine oftentimes how our day goes. And those two questions are this. There's something that I know I should do, but I don't want to. Can I make myself do it? Secondly, similarly, there's something that I know I shouldn't do, but I really want to. Can I keep myself from it? Those are two questions that every single one of us throughout the course of our day we're faced with. Every single day in certain situations and circumstances. There's something that I should do, but I don't want to. Can I make myself do it? There's something that I shouldn't do, but I really want to. Can I keep myself from it? And really, those two questions are getting at the, at the core of self-denial and self-discipline. And as I said, there's uh, all throughout the world, there are belief systems and really just cultures at large that applaud self-discipline and Self-denial, that's something that we, most of us in most ways in which the world works, look at that and say, yeah, that's really great. If you can be a person of self-denial and self-discipline, then you're gonna succeed in life. So on that front, it's not uniquely Christian, but we'll look at a, in a moment at how Jesus talked about this and it does become uniquely Christian in the way that we live it out. But before we get there, I'll just simply say this. This is, we know it, I don't have to say it, but self-denial is hard. It's incredibly difficult. You know, we, I mentioned this recently, but there was a study, a famous study that was done 10, 15 years ago from Stanford University where they call it the marshmallow experiment. And uh, they would bring a child or a couple of children into a room, sit them at a table and put a marshmallow, one marshmallow right in front of them. And they tell them this, look, you can have the marshmallow now or if you wait, and whatever the allotted time was, if you wait five minutes, 10 minutes, and don't eat the marshmallow in front of you, I'll bring you another one, you can have two. So delayed gratification, self-discipline, self-denial, all of that is at play. Now they were studying, uh, can we determine at an early age who's going to be successful in life based on their inclination and disposition towards self-denial and self-discipline, delayed gratification. But forget all that, it's just fun to watch. <laughs> it's fun to watch these little kids stare, I mean very cruelly, they just leave it right in front of them, just right there, and just stare at this marshmallow and just experience the torture. And they want it so badly. And there were some who were able to, to do it. They, they could wait and they waited and they got their second marshmallow and they just dug in at that point. 
But there were many, as you would imagine. I would have been this child. He said, I could wait for the second one, but there's one right in front of me right now. And that person told me I could eat it right now. So I'm going to. Just this week, Rachel and I uh, had a little day date on Friday. We go by, uh, it happened to be over near one of the crumble cookie locations. So of course we bought some. And we brought them back to our house and they sat on our counter and I can't tell you how many times I walked by them and thought, do not take a bite. And I also can't tell you how many times that I didn't heed my advice and I took a bite. Self-denial is hard, it's difficult. And when we begin to talk about in this sermon today, when we begin to marry, if you will, self-denial with Christian discipleship, what Christ has made it about, we realize this is a really hard endeavor. This has to be a work of the Spirit within us. And every day as a Christian is a fight. Every day. Every day is a fight against our old nature, against our old self. We know, we've talked about this a lot, a lot if you've been with us and over the years or even just recently, we, we bring up often the truth of the reality that, that we were born into sin. We were born into uh, naturally having this nature among us that is sinful. And so naturally, very naturally, the way that plays out in this arena is that we are very naturally selfish people. Uh, we will self-protect, we will self-promote, we will do all kinds of things for self and we think self first. So part of the Christian battle, once you place your faith in Christ, is he's doing a renewing work within us and changing us from the inside out and giving us a new heart, is he's giving us a heart and mind like his, which is to say a heart and mind that is bent not towards self-protection and self-promotion, but to self-denial and self-sacrifice, to make us more like him. And a big part of that is to be in such a way to where we're not considering ourselves first. So... Self-denial is not, the Christian self-denial is not fundamentally an issue of discipline. Christian self-denial is fundamentally an issue of discipleship. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, it is one of the anchors that is true of those who follow Jesus. It's one of the things that we live out most. And it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus as he is defining the very nature and mission and purpose of his kingdom and how it comes. Let's read it. Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Look at this. And he said this plainly. You know, sometimes Jesus talks in language that can be confusing. He'll speak in a parable or he'll, he'll tell a story and the disciples just go, what is he talking about? But Mark wants us to know right here that he said very clearly, very plainly, hey, look, I'm gonna be, I'm be given over to the chiefs, uh, elders and, and scribes. I'm gonna be beaten. I'm gonna be killed. I'm gonna raise on the third day. That's what's gonna happen. Now watch the, the disciples' response as voiced by Peter as, as it often was. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus did. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just pause for a moment. Sometimes we can read these things and not enter into the story of the emotions of it and the shock of it all. Can you imagine how Peter's feeling at this moment? 
He's doing what he thinks is right. He's saying, Jesus, no, 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 we will never let that happen. We will never let you be taken by the elders and the chief, uh, chief scribes and elders and, and being given over to death and to beating. And that, that, that'll never happen. And the next thing he knows, Jesus is calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Don't you know Peter's going, whoa, well, what just happened? He thought he was doing the right thing. Jesus keeps pressing in and he says, look, okay, look, clearly my disciples aren't getting it. So crowds, come here, everybody gather around. Let me tell you about the nature and the mission of my kingdom. This is what he says. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life or his soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus is pressing in very deeply, very uncomfortably with his disciples and the crowds around them to say, this is, if you want to be about my kingdom, this is what it looks like. It's denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Again, the shock factor is massive here. Again, we've talked about this a lot, but this may be new to you. The cross was the uh, worst form of capital punishment in the Roman and first century Roman times. So to say, take up your cross, they're not understanding yet that Jesus is going to die on a cross. They're not understanding the, the picture that he's giving them. And so all they hear is take up your capital punishment in the worst way possible. That's what is part of what is following me. In other words, there is a self-denial, self-sacrifice that is significant beyond your imagination that is involved with following me. If you want to lose your life, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What if you get all these things, whatever they are, that the world says life is about, but then you lose your own life or you lose your own soul, is the Greek word really gets at. I've told this story before, but it's just fun for me to tell. I, I, I love thinking back on it. My parents are actually here this morning, so they'll get a kick out of this. But when I was young, I don't know how old I was, we, uh, we, instead of playing Trivial Pursuit, we would, uh, we would play Bible Trivial Pursuit. Yes, we were that family. <laughs> and if you're familiar with the game, you have to get these pie pieces, and once you get all of them, then I don't remember. You get to move up the board and win or something. Anyway. But the, there were different categories, and so one of the categories was fill in the blank. And this particular one was finish the verse, fill in the blank by finishing the verse, and the verse was this verse. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own blank? And apparently, I don't remember, but I've heard my dad tell the story so many times, I, I really labored over this. I sweated, I, I, I really wanted to get it right. And after a few minutes of just thinking and praying, I'll say I was praying, I don't know, who knows. I finally answered, and this is what I answered with. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own woman? Because as an eight-year-old or nine, 10, whatever I was, man, that made a lot of sense to me. You, you finally get your wife, you finally get that woman of your dreams, man, if you look... What does it profit a man if you lose her? <laughs> right? 
And uh, as I've heard him tell the story over the years, uh, mom and dad laughed really hard. And then dad, dad said something to the effect of, well, you're not necessarily wrong. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> but no, that's not right. But I, do, I share that story to say, what, what do you fill the blank in? What do you fill the blank in with? What, I think that actually says a lot to, if we're honest, if we're able to just say, okay, look, here's the deal. What is the profit of man if I gain the whole world and lose my own? What is it? What is it that you put in that blank that if you lost it, you would be devastated? To the extent that we begin to realize this is what our true God is. This is what, who or what it is that if it's gone, I don't know how to function. I don't know what to do with life if I don't have it. And so it's getting at the core of even the first commandment that we've been in in recent, week, recent weeks where, you know, there shall be no other gods before me. Well, what are those things that naturally creep in to be before him in the value priority list, if you will, of our worship? But I don't want you to miss what was happening with Peter here and, and really the disciples. Peter was just speaking on behalf of them. The thing that's going on here is they're totally confused they're totally confused about the nature and the mission of the kingdom of God. So I wanna give you a first point, I'm gonna give you four things to fight for today. Remember I said that all of Christian life is a fight, it's a daily fight through the power of the spirit within us. Well the first thing to fight against is we have to fight against confusion about the nature and the mission of the kingdom of God. Because this is exactly what Peter and the disciples were doing. They were confused. The reason that Peter rebuked Jesus is because, is because he had an understanding of the kingdom that wasn't accurate. Specifically, the nature of the kingdom and the mission of the kingdom. So in, in this first century, all these Jewish people, they had been looking back at the Old Testament scriptures and they had been misinterpreting them. They had been reading them and misinterpreting them to be something that, to say something they really weren't saying. Now, they were saying it about the second coming of Christ, that he will come in power at that point, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will reign and rule as the coming king militarily. He will take over, but that's the second coming of Christ, and those prophecies, they had all put into the first coming of Christ, and so they totally missed the nature of the kingdom that Jesus brought. Here's what they thought. They thought when the king, the Messiah, showed up, that he would bring a kingdom with him that would be such that he would go into Rome and overthrow Roman authorities who were oppressing Christians. That his rule and reign would be a governmental one, that it would be a political one. And we know that they care deeply about this because in other places in the gospels, we see them arguing about it. And it was a self-promotion thing. It wasn't a self-denial thing. They wanted to know what's my role in this overtaking of Rome. Will we get to sit next to Jesus on his throne. And they were totally missing the nature in the kingdom of God. Some of the things that Jesus is trying to help them see in this passage is he's, he's trying to say, look guys, it doesn't come from protecting your rights. It comes from laying them down. It doesn't come from uh, self-service, but selfless service. It doesn't come from victoriously conquering those in power. It comes from humbly serving those in power. It doesn't come, and this is what he straight up said, it doesn't come from saving one's own life, but losing it. Now, I think there's a word of warning to the modern church in America here. 
Because the nature of the human heart has always been the same. We, we get confused and we get misled. And we have misconceptions about the nature of the kingdom of God. And we marry them to other ideologies that ultimately hurt the church. One of the things that, remember I said, first century Jews, they were looking back at the Old Testament scriptures and they were interpreting them through a lens that was gonna be best for them as they saw it. And Jesus says, guys, you don't get what my kingdom is about. You're not understanding the way in which my kingdom comes. What I'm watching today, and this has been true for a long time, but it's at an all-time high right now, is I'm watching the current American church really struggle with this really struggle with misconceptions and confusion around the nature and the mission of the kingdom of God. What we have today is we have many people within the church who are looking back at the New Testament scriptures, not too unlike those Jews looking back at the, first, at the Old Testament scriptures, and we're looking back at the New Testament scriptures and we're totally misunderstanding and misapplying them and saying that the kingdom of God needs to come in power at the governmental political level that that's how the kingdom is most gonna come. And Jesus is saying to us, just like he did then, if that's what you believe, you're not understanding the nature and the mission of my kingdom because it's a sub subversive kingdom. It comes through service. It comes through denying oneself. It, it comes through losing one's life. Now, I can already hear and see the emails that you wanna send me. Jeff, Jeff hates America. Jeff doesn't want to see Christian principles and policies happen in America. If you're hearing that, you're not hearing me. What I'm concerned about is this. We are growing in our inability to distinguish between the values and ideals of America and the values and ideals of the kingdom of God. And we've married them so much together that we've created a new worldview that was never in the Bible. It was never a part of the nature and the mission of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter who is over us in the same way that first century Christians, Jesus said, render unto Caesars who is Caesars. Render unto God what is God's. And if you've so tied the nature of the kingdom of God to the success or the fall of America, then we're doing something that God never intended us to do. I love my country. I want you to vote. I want you to care. I want you to care about policies. I care about policies, but not to the extent that we begin to freak out if they don't happen the way that we want them to. So much so that we think the kingdom of God is going to falter. This is what God says is the nature and the mission of the kingdom of God. And we cannot be confused about it. We can't. We cannot risk being confused about the nature and the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you this. My biggest fear is that there is a division coming in the evangelical Protestant church over this issue. And I think God is deeply deeply grieved by it, deeply. When he tells us so plainly in his word, this is the nature and this is the mission of my kingdom. Now how, how do we begin to embrace the nature and the mission of his kingdom? How do we begin to embrace it? It might surprise you to hear me say, I think it starts with how we think. You, you would might think, you say, well, it starts with your heart. Well, sure, absolutely, the heart is the, the center seat, if you will, of all our emotions and affections and desires and so forth. 
But one of the things the scriptures do over and over again is talk about the renewing of our minds is the foundation of a life to, that, that mimics Jesus' life of self-denial. So we fight for that. We fight for the renewal of our minds as the foundation to a lifestyle of self-denial. So flip over to Colossians 3. Uh, Colossians 3, in, in many ways, is, is, in my opinion, a very clear outworking of what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross, deny yourselves and follow me. What does that look like? You may read that in, in Mark chapter eight and go, what does that look like? Well, Colossians three gives us very clear, this is what it looks like to deny yourself, to worship together with God's people in self-denial. Let's read the first four verses. It says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your, here it is, set your minds on things above that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Romans 12, one and two says this, I appeal to you brothers, listen to this language. I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, there it is again. To present our bodies, every part of who we are is a living sacrifice, dying to self, self-denial, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, how would we do this? How would we begin to do this? Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, here it is, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 2 says that we should have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 says that we have been given the mind of Christ. Well, we begin to think about these things and we go, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus would think in such a way to where what was at the forefront of his thoughts was constantly not himself, but others. It was to give himself up as a ransom for many. It was to die to self on the daily and then literally for the sins of the world. And then he says, Philippians 2, we should have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. To deny self in the Christian way, in the Christ-like way through Jesus in us is a costly endeavor. It's hard. It's not convenient ever. But it's what God has called us to. John Stott has a quote that wrecks me because I think it's so true of even how I and many others have settled into comfortability within the Christian faith. He says this, all too many people still ignore Christ's warnings and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become a little bit involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder cynics complain of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. That's a fun quote. 
It's so hard, but, but I think he's spot on. Part of the struggle that we have is we don't fight to put off the, the old self. That's the third point. We gotta fight to put off, put to death the old self. As Colossians 3 continues, Paul says you gotta put to death the old nature within you. Even though you're in Christ, even though you're, follower, you're a follower of Jesus by faith in him, you still have the residue of that old nature. And your bent, your, predis, your, your disposition is gonna be to, to go back to that old self every single day. And so every day we fight and we put to death all the ways in which naturally we don't want to deny self. We want to gratify the self. So he says things like, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Then he later says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So that's the fourth fight, is to fight not just to put to death and put away the old self, but to put on the new self. He's using language that gives us this visual of putting on and taking off clothes. So to take off the old rags, the dirty rags, the filthy rags, and to put on the new clothes of Christ, thinking, living, loving like he does through him within us. When he gets to that part in verse 12 where he's talking about what to put on through Christ in us as we become those more like him in self-denial, he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three categories he talked about putting the self, new self on in. First, he talked about personally, inwardly. Be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient, be thankful. We wanna look like Jesus and Jesus is living in us, then that's what's coming out of us personally. It, that flows into relationally. He says this about our relationships. He says, bear with one another and forgive each other. And above all, put on love, which binds all things together, everything together in perfect harmony. And then, towards the end there, he talks corporately. Corporately, when we're gathered together, this is what it should look like. Here's how we should be as we worship together. He says this, he says, as one body, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what does it look like? Once we're gathered here, to worship together in self-denial. Three things I'll give you very quickly. One, I think it, we worship together in self-denial in the way that we sing. We worship together in self-denial in the way that we serve. We worship together in self-denial in the way that we submit. 
The way that we sing, this is an easy one to pick on. You know, last week I said I'm gonna talk a little bit about preference versus deference. What does it look like to come into the gathered body and to bend towards deference rather than my preferences? We all come in with preferences, every single one of us. And so every single one of us, I would imagine, if you've been in or around perimeter for any length of time, you come in here and you have a preference of how we would sing. Every single one of us, myself included. And oftentimes we let those preferences dictate whether we sing or not, or whether or not we engage in worship or not. And so I wanna encourage you to do something. Whenever there's a song, and inevitably there will be, whenever there's a song that you don't like, or it's not being played the way that you like it, I would encourage you to do this. Look around the room and watch those who it is blessing. Watch who is singing and actually pray a prayer of thanksgiving. That came up three times in the text. Be people of thanksgiving. Be thankful. So when you find yourself out of your preferences saying, I don't wanna sing this, move to deference through Christ in you of self-denial and say, oh wait, that person's singing this one, this one, and wow, she's raising her hands and he really is worth, thank you Lord that even though I don't like this song, it is blessing the body corporately because it's not about me. Church is not about me, worship is not about me, it's about him. So how do we move towards deference in that self-denial, Christ-like way, even in the way that we sing? What about in the way that we serve? Church is no different than every other organization. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. So what does it look like to come into the space not expecting that someone is going to serve me, although they will, hopefully? But what if, what if I, how can I serve in a way to where I'm constantly putting others as more important than myself? Submitting to one another. The rest of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, similar passage, talks about submitting out of, uh, to one another out of deference to one another. Considering others is more important than myself. I'm telling you guys, if, if, if the church right now, just the church of Jesus, the people who say I follow Christ, lived out Colossians 3 and lived out Mark 8, these two passages, it would make an unbelievable transforming difference in the way that we engage with the world. It would be tremendously different. And who the world looks, up, looks, at, looks at us and says, this is what they stand for. This is what they're about. We want to be a people who say, I want to be like my Jesus. And I want to get and understand in new and fresh ways, according to the word of God, what the nature and the mission of his kingdom is. And so I want to fight every day to think rightly, to put off the old, to put on the new. Now, I asked a question at the very beginning of the sermon as we wrap up here. What makes self-denial uniquely Christian? As mentioned before, you can be a person of self-denial. You can have great self-discipline and not be a Christian. So why? Matthew 13, 44 is the verse that I think gets at the heart of why we deny ourselves. And here's what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Now watch this word, these, these words right here. Then in his joy. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, here's the thing. When we encounter, when we come into uh, the discovery, if you will, of Jesus and his kingdom, he is of such value. He is the treasure and his kingdom is the treasure. And that is so compelling 
that we, we deny self, not for the sake of self-denial so that we can feel better about ourselves. We deny self so that we can get more of him. Did you notice what happened in that little parable that Jesus told? He, he stumbles upon the treasure in the field, which represents Jesus and his kingdom. And it is such value that he instinctively, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has. The reason we are a people of self-denial is because we know the joy of the treasure of Christ. Every other person outside of Jesus who is given to self-denial, it is, it is not a thing of joy. But to those who know Jesus, it's a thing of joy because he is the treasure and his kingdom is the treasure. One last thing as we think about we worship together, I think one of the ways that God is calling us right now corporately is we come out of this season of COVID, Lord willing, as we regather as a church, he's calling us as well to, sell, to deny ourselves from the infatuation of convenience. He's calling us to deny ourselves from the infatuation of convenience. Even before COVID, the average perimeter attender would come two out of four weeks a month. Now, I, I certainly don't know all the stories, but I do know enough to say that m most of that reality was because people are given, we, I'm not just looking at you, I'm saying we, we are a people who are infatuated with convenience. And if church works out for me to show up and worship corporately, then great. If it doesn't, I'm not gonna sweat it. But what we see in the scriptures over and over again is that he's calling us together on a rhythmic weekly basis for our good and for his glory. And so a big part of our self-denial, worshiping together in self-denial, is that we could let go of the infatuation that we have with convenience and be a people of conviction towards corporate worship. So let's be that people. Let's ask God to do in us a work that only he can do, to make us a people of self-denial, understanding the nature and the mission of his kingdom, putting off the old, putting on the new and worshiping together for his glory. Father, would you do that? We pray that you would bring about a work of your spirit within us in such a way that we would be a church that because of you in us and because of the kingdom of God taking deeper and deeper root in us, that we would be a people of self-denial, that we would take up our cross daily and follow you. Father, forgive us of all the ways in which uh, on a daily basis, we seek to save our lives rather than lose them. Forgive us of all the ways in which we uh, seek to profit from all the things that the world says life is about, but in so doing, we lose grip of your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to give us the ability to fall down before you, to lay our crowns before you, and to declare that you are the king, that in our joy, we will sell all to follow you, denying ourselves for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.